Uh, good morning. We're continuing our series in Hebrews that's entitled Draw Near. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to chapter 4. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 1 in there, um, or devices, whatever you have. We'll also have the verses up on the screen as well. Uh, and then just as a heads up, as I was going through it uh, again this morning here, uh, I realized that there's a, a couple of verses that I miss putting into my outline. Uh, and so again, if you have a Bible, uh, you'll be able to follow along with those, because I don't think we'll be able to get them in. Uh, but we'll add verses 12 through 13 uh, into this as well as we get into it. But Again, uh, today as we get into this, we're, we're going through this series and looking at what it means to draw near to God and uh, how we're able to do that in various ways. And last week, we're kind of taking a look at responding to the voice of God. It was that uh, warning to the Israelites of a uh, reminder of the time when they were on the precipice of the promised land. Uh, and what they happened was, is Joshua and Caleb were like, yeah, this is where the Lord has led us. Let's head into this in faithfulness. God is with us. Who can stand against us? Uh, and then the, like the other 38 spies uh, were sitting there saying, well, it's too big. It's too hard. Let's go back to the onions, the leeks, the, the garlic, uh, and all of these things. And so it was this a kind of a, a warning for us that if we hear the voice of God to, to respond to that in faith, uh, instead of um, uh, withdrawing from that, to instead to, to draw near uh, and to be able to rest in that. But last week there was an aspect within those passages that we didn't really focus on. Uh, we're going to get into that today, and that was the concept uh, of rest or peace. It was one of the things that was promised to the Israelites as he head to the promised land. Like, look, you're going to head into this place of, of rest. In fact, one of the warnings was you're not going to enter into my rest because of your disobedience. And so we're going to be taking a look at that, what that rest is, what that peace means, uh, and really because it's also part of that gospel call. It's one of the things that Jesus called out in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we'll be looking at this today. Uh, let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, as we come into your holy word. Uh, and I just pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us as we look at these passages. As we look at our lives and the areas that we seek to have rest, the ways that we try to find rest, what true rest is, we just pray that you would speak to us uh, and where adjustments need to be made. Uh, we trust that your Holy Spirit will guide us in those things and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're picking it up uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 1. It says, therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you to be found have fallen short. For we also received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who believed entered that rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest, even though the works have been finished since the before the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. Now as we begin to get into this passage, there's a, a couple of things that pop at least into my mind within this. Uh, first of all, they're talking about this rest. And so we need to determine and kind of to study and, and look at what is this rest that we're supposed to, to enter into, that we're supposed to go for. 
But secondly, um, is one of the things that I um, both love and I'm very challenged by in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews uh, very much has this concept of, of draw near to God, and, and that's what we're looking through. But the book of Hebrews also has uh, very strong warnings that come across. We'll just go back to this first verse. Since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you found to have been fallen short. Uh, like right there, just, just looking at that one verse is, is, can seem to be out of balance with much of the gospel. Right? Because much of the gospel is that you're saved by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. It, it is a gift of God. And it's not even our own faith. Like, like here is that, that gospel presentation of it's by grace, it's by mercy, it's by everything that Jesus has done and, and nothing that we have done. And, and yet here it says, as long as this promise to enter remains, let us beware that none of us found to be fallen short. And, and so again, here's this, this warning, and it's one of these things as we go through Hebrews that we have to, to look to balance with the gospel and what's actually being communicated because you come away with some of these passages and it can feel like a heavier weight, a heavier burden, where we look at our hearts and our minds and Satan can almost twist that into working it within us that we're not good enough, that we are falling short. Because it's really easy to look in the mirror and see all the different ways that we don't stack up. And in that sense, we can kind of do this. So keep that in mind as we go through this passage, uh, because it resolves itself towards the end of chapter 4 here. Uh, and we'll get into that. But as far as this rest goes, well, for one, it was the Israelites' rest that they were seeking as they headed into the promised land of Canaan. It was promised to them in, in Deuteronomy 12. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land the Lord is giving to you to inherit, and as he gives you rest from all the enemies around you, and you live in security. So for them, they were looking forward to this rest from striving and fighting for survival, uh, rest in a land of, of provision, freedom from hard forced labor, and a rest from enemies, which especially was nice for that nation as they were coming out of 400 years of slavery uh, in Egypt where they were forced to build uh, for the Egyptians. However, though, this promised rest to the Israelites was just a shadow of something that was far greater. And again, they weren't fully grasping it at that time, but in the book of Hebrews, it continues on in verse 5. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, uh, again, he specifies a certain day. Today. And so right here, as you read through this passage, it can get kind of convoluted because what is happening is the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is actually looking at three different time periods. And he's looking back at two different passages within Scripture. So the first one is he's referring to the Israelites not entering into the rest because they disobeyed and they didn't get to go into um, the promised land. Secondly, though, he's referring to where it says he again specifies a certain day today. He's speaking back through David. Continues on. He says, specify this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. 
Therefore, Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. So again, entering into the promised land and the rest from like physical enemies was a foreshadowing of this greater rest. And so even though some of the nation of Israel missed out on heading into, I keep wanting to call it the Garden of Eden. What was it called? The promised land? I thought there was, what was that? No, I'm sorry. I'm blanking on it, but hey, heading into that. Anyways, I can't, I'm getting stuck on that for some reason. Heading into this promised land. Uh, and instead, what this rest was, uh, is a much greater rest, a spiritual rest, not just a physical rest, but actually it talks about God's rest, where God himself rested at the end of creation. And so it's not saying that we enter into our idea of rest, our idea of what peace means, but rather the rest that God himself had at the end of creation. Genesis 2 puts it this way, the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Uh, so at this point, Adam and Eve uh, were created. All of the work of creation was done. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no sickness. There's no toiling for food or for existence. Uh, and then through them and their choice of rebellion and wanting to be like God themselves and eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, sin entered into the world. And ever since then, humanity has been seeking rest. We've been trying to find all manner of earthly solutions and pleasures to, to, to have a, a sense of escape from toil, sickness, and death. It drives our relationships. It drove the industrial revolution. It, it drives the scientific revolutions. We're constantly looking at ways to make things easier, to, to be able to make more money for less work. We have robots that go around and, and like I had one of those, you know when you like walk into a door sometimes um, or you're, you're in an aisle and somebody else is coming the same way and, and one of you goes right and the other one goes left and you're just kind of, oh, oh, sorry, oh, and you have that like weird awkward dance. I had that with one of the cleaning robots at a grocery store the other day. Just really, oh, no, okay, I'm, okay, I'm going to stop and let you go um, because you'll take over the world at some point. Um, <laughs> At least there's so many different sci-fi movies that warn us about those things. But again, there's this constant driving within our culture to make things easier, to be able to have a rest. And even though we look at some of those robotic things or the self-checkout lanes and how that's replacing jobs, but in essence, for the ones that are instigating those within their companies, they're like, all right, this is easier. I can make more money. I can rest easier. And so there's been this drive for rest in humanity ever since the fall. And this desire for rest, if allowed, can cause us to live very selfish lives where our only concern uh, is number one in our perceived needs or wants. And because of that, it often is trying to find rest that's a shadow of what true rest is. We consider rest as a respite from conflict and toil. Like it's been hard, and so I'm looking forward to the rest. I, I've worked all week, and so now I can rest on the weekend. 
We look for rest as a difference from grinding for provision and shelter. And we're looking for that sense of something that's easier. The quick dollar. Be able to do it without as much effort. Consider rest to be political peace and rest. We strive to find that. Or perhaps it's a pursuit of emotional or mental peace. uh, Or even a pursuit of just not doing the things that we don't want to do. And we get stressed out and conflicted about those things. And we try to rest from that. Oftentimes, our definition of rest is just to be able to shut down for a little while in hopes of trying to recover from everything and all of the stress that we've gained and trying to to earn and grow or protect or find comfort or all of these things. But the truth is that with all of humanity's ingenuity and inventions, we cannot create the ultimate and total rest that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Again, that sense of peace, where they're there in this intimate relationship with God. I'm just trying to imagine that for a moment. If you've got a, a favorite place in nature, you know, I, one of mine is like Riverside Park, you know, down by the willows, and you have kind of the rock river going around. And, and, and so imagine actually being okay to swim in the rock river, right? That, that's like one of the hardest things to imagine. But just imagine, like, like there's no pollution. Like it's actually pristine, and there's no qualms at all about just jumping in or letting your kids jump in. Right? Like that's how drastic this is. But but okay, you're, so you're sitting there and, and the fruit is provided. There's apple trees. Everything that you need is is right there. And and then Adam and Eve's job was to be like, that's a cool looking fish. Let's call it a trout. That other one has a really big mouth, so we'll call that a big mouth bass. This other one looks the same, but it's small mouth. You know, and, and so that's like, like what they spent their time doing in relationship with God, trusting his provision. They didn't have to strive. They didn't have to toil. They didn't have to worry about attack or shelter or any of these other things. They were in true rest. And we lost that. We lost it when they decided not to trust God and what he said. We lost it when they decided or wanted to decide, rather, what is good and right and what is wrong. And they grasped after that by eating the fruit in the garden. And ever since then, we've been trying to grasp after what is too much toil, what is too much rest, and let's decide it for ourselves. And it's ended up in this ongoing hamster wheel pursuit of trying to find rest and peace, but it always being shallow in comparison to what was lost. We forget that this rest was lost through separation from God due to sin. And that it can be only be restored through a restoration of that relationship, a, a return to peace with God is that only source of rest that humanity has been striving for for thousands of years. In Hebrew language, it's described this way as shalom. Shalom is a sense of true peace in life and with God. It's something that's meant to to be gained, but it's only gained through a right relationship with God. It doesn't mean that there isn't any work, right? Like even the sense of the Israelites heading to 
the promised land and then entering into that area, it wasn't this sense of like, okay, now you're here and guess what? Surprise, it's really the Garden of Eden and there's no enemies and all the fruit grows on trees again. And it wasn't that case. Like they had to enter into it. They had to be able to, to cultivate, to farm. They had to do work, but it was this invitation to do it in this area of peace and trust and God's provision and in that, in relationship with him. In fact, God even promised, like if you're faithful in the planting cycles that I'm giving to you, you're going to have an abundance of food and you're not going to have to worry during the year that you're not supposed to plant anything. Every seven years. Imagine that, being a farmer. Every seven years. Oh, I'm not planting anything because I'll have enough. That's the kind of rest that God was inviting them in order to get into. And so this peace and this rest is not what our society has strived to define as peace and rest. But, but rather, what, what society has done is compartmentalize things. Like, here's work, whatever that work week is, 9 to 5, 40 hours a week, whatever, and then you can rest afterwards. Here's what you do. You work until you're 62, 63, you got enough pension saved up, and, and now you can retire and rest. There's songs, right? Working for the weekend. And there's all these things about trying to put nose to the grindstone in order to earn rest. And it's highly compartmentalized. And what God is calling us into this life of living in, because of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection on the cross, is a life of being at peace with God. At rest from striving, from trying to be good enough. So that as we're at our jobs, as we're at school, as we're, we're working in whatever context God is providing for us in, we can have joy and peace and rest because we're doing it at that moment with him and onto him in a close relationship that is restored after what happened and broke it in the Garden of Eden. That we have that same rest because we're with God. Matthew talks time and time again. He's like, don't worry about what you're going to eat or about what you're going to wear. Doesn't God provide for the flowers of the field and the birds of the air? Seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be added to you. Later in Matthew, he talks about, are not two sparrows sold for a very small amount of money? Forget exactly what it was. Was it? A penny? Something like that, really small, right? Two small sparrows sold for very, very little. Are you not worth more than that? And, and God takes care of them. He knows when they fall. He knows how many hairs are on our head at any given moment. That's the relationship he's calling us to, to enter into in this intimacy and trust with him. Even when we're at a job that the world would call stressful, we can go through every step of that stressful job with God alongside us. And how would that change? How differently would that look if we're entering into that with him on our side, which he always is, but actually acknowledging that, acknowledging each moment, acknowledging those decisions, asking for his help in those decisions, and then walking through the, the crazy, hectic parts of the work week with him. Versus, let me get through this, 
and then I'll sprinkle in my devotions and, and we compartmentalize everything. It's this call, uh, again, to this intimate relationship with God. Now, again, we get into this pa passage and we go back to verse 1. And it says, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. So this is the promise of rest with him, this relationship with him. And then that's, again, this danger of like, we'll look into our lives and this is the promise that we can have rest and joy regardless of what's happening in this world or what our jobs are like or what relationships are like. We can have this rest in him, this joy in him. And then we examine our lives and we're like, where is it? Where is this sense of my yoke is easy and my burden is light? That is promised in our relationship with him. And so we look at that passage and there's this sense of like, okay, well, maybe I've fallen short and, and that's why I don't have rest. But again, it's all about relationship. We head further into chapter four here. We've been talking about this rest and, and the nation of Israel. Uh, and then it comes into verse 11 where it says, let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall, sh fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So again, this little aspect of warning, but then in verse 12, it says, for the word of the God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him in whom we must give an account. How do you feel about that verse? That the word of God, that, that Jesus, that scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cleaves down to bone and marrow, it is judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to Jesus, to whom we must give an account. Again, there's this weight within Hebrews that says, are you recognizing this? Do, do you recognize that Jesus knows and sees everything? And he's calling us into this rest. And he knows when we're not trusting this rest. He knows when we're running away from this rest. He knows the sins that we have hidden from ourselves or from others. He knows all of these things and we must give an account. And so I love this passage, even though it's this heaviness because of the very next verse. I'm gonna read through it again and then we'll continue on. Word of God is living, effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge or Jesus judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus sees all, knows all. Verse 14, therefore, since we have such a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. 
Let us hold fast to our faith, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet is without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I think this is one of the most powerful juxtapositions of two verses and thoughts in all of Scripture. First of all, Jesus knows everything, even the darkest parts of us. He knows it. And because he knows it, therefore, since we have a high priest, Jesus, hold on to our faith because he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows fully what we're struggling with, and he sympathizes with it. We have stress and anxiety in our life over stressful situations. Jesus sweat blood because of the stress that he was facing when it came to the cross. He knows what humans feel because he felt it the stress of about what he was about to go through. And so when we are feeling that same stress, Jesus is able to sympathize with us. He knows that we're feeling it. And it's not this aspect of judgment, but rather this calling to enter into the throne room boldly, to be able to say, this is where I need to be, even in the midst of stress. If we find ourselves in a place of homelessness at times, Jesus has been there. Foxes have dens. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Poor, rejected, betrayed, even tempted. Jesus has been through all of these experiences. He knows what they feel like. And what this passage at the end of Hebrews is saying is he knows what they feel like and he can see them within us. And instead of looking down at us, instead of saying, okay, you don't belong, you're not good enough, you're falling short, it is this invitation through the Holy Spirit that then says we can enter boldly before the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We can only enter boldly because of this restoration of relationship and our identity of who we are in Jesus Christ. That we have a right to be there, a right to ask for help, and a right that he will help us. As I was trying to think through different examples of this sense of identity and a right in order to be in places, uh, I was reminded of um, a biography that I had been reading uh, by Chuck Colson. Uh, Chuck Colson was like a political advisor to President Nixon um, and, and got caught up in the whole Watergate thing, uh, ended up heading over into prison, but through that found radical transformation um, with Jesus Christ uh, and began to be able to, to preach to people and, and lead people to Christ as well. But he, in his uh, book, he's actually telling a story of President Nixon. And one of the things that would happen um, is, is President Nixon would just have whims at times. And so they were just, the phone could ring at any moment. And, and one night, he, 
Chuck Colson's at home and the phone rings and he picks it up and I'm not going to try and do a Nixon impression at this point. But, but basically he was saying, uh, what is playing at the big theater in town tonight? I don't even know if they're open, Mr. President. Well, I'd like to go. Okay. We'll try and find out what's happening, Mr. President. And so they hop on the phone and they're like calling out. There's no internet at this point for them just to be like, oh, what's playing at the theater today? And so they go through like this whole thing and they're calling around trying to find somebody. They've got like a dozen people working on this and they find out that at this particular theater, uh, the Marine marching band, like the whole symphony is playing and that it ends in half an hour. Okay. Well, Mr. President, the band's playing there, but it's almost done in half an hour. I'm going to go. Okay. So then they call the theater. They get a hold of the band director. The band director starts playing the same song over and over again, just kind of stalling for the president to be able to get there. The Secret Service is scrambling left and right in order to get things prepared for the president to be able to walk in. And, and so then he walks in, and as he walks in, you know, the band strikes up whatever the song is whenever the president enters in, and he sits down, and everybody's like, yes, he's, he's here. His sense of identity as the president was, I want to go listen to music. I'm going to go listen to music. Any one of us would have no right to be able to do the same thing, right? Like, hey, could you just start the movie over at the movie theater? Not ha The president calls, hey, I want to watch this movie. Okay, let's do that. Now, I go through this whole story and this whole sense of identity because of the power of what this verse actually means. And I think we don't walk in the truth of this verse in that same way. President Nixon had that such a sense of his identity as the president. I'm going to go. Okay, it's going to happen. We're able to approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. How often do we approach God in prayer with the sense of identity that he's given to us? Instead, I think we often look to put our own sense of identity upon us, that sense of identity that goes back to verse 1 and listens to the accusations of the enemy that says that we have fallen short. And yet what Scripture tells us is it's not our actions that justify us. It is not our deeds or our failures that determine whether or not we are an adopted son or daughter of God. It's what He has done. It is what His love is. It is His grace, His mercy, His sacrifice, and His choice of you before the foundation of the world, even though He knows what's between our soul and our spirit and what the darkest aspects of our life is. He chooses us and says, you're welcome to enter boldly. And yet so often when we come in prayer, there's a sense of hesitancy. There's a sense of maybe I shouldn't be praying this way. If we're angry, there's this sense of like, I can't pray angry. I can't pray. I, the relationship is to be able to enter into this boldly. 
President Nixon, I'm going to watch this show. I'm going in. There was no request. There was no ask. There was no this sense of, you know, I'd really like to see this show. And, and so if you guys, if it's not too much trouble, could you let me in to see this show? And yet I feel our prayers at times is, God, I could really use help in this area. Can you, please? Which are the right words, right? God, I really need help. But our attitude is more of that withered sense of, of failure and falling short. And we come to him like Oliver saying, please, sir, may I have some more? Instead of adopted son or daughter, I need help now boldly entering the throne room of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Regardless of where we're at, regardless of how dark of a place we're at in our lives or what we have done, we enter boldly so that we find the grace and mercy in the time of need. It is promised to be there. But what we have to do is to have the mindset that the Israelites failed to have. They were being led by God. They're coming to the promised land. God says, this is what I have for you. Enter in and I will help you. Take this step of faith. Oh, but there's giants. It's going to be hard. Well, this is what I have for you. Enter in and I will help you. I think so often when we come and we pray, what happens is, is God says, I have something for you. This is what I want. Oh, but it's difficult. But the provision's here. The help's here. The strength's here. The grace is here. The mercy's here. It looks too difficult. And I think that's why our prayers have shifted from entering into the, bold room, the, the, the throne room boldly and have shifted into a timid request at times. Because we may not say it with our words, but what our attitude might be is, God, I really need help with this stress. God, I really need help with this temptation. God, I really need help in this situation. And there's only a few ways that I kind of want to do it. We don't say that. But in our timidity, it's like, God, would you help me? But please, not this way. Please, not this way. Please, not this way. Please don't let me be exposed. Don't call me to repentance. Don't call me to confession. Don't call me to step out in faith. Don't call me to... And so our prayers are almost kind of like a, God, I need help. Okay, no, I'm not hearing rightly. Let me, let me do what I think is right. Instead of this boldly coming into the throne of grace so that we receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Entering into that throne room and saying, Lord, I am broken in my sin and I am tired of this cycle within my life. I need help. And the Holy Spirit and his scripture says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Walk through this together. 
And our choice in that moment is to continue on in that boldness and trust in him. And in that, there is grace and there is mercy and there is help and there is power. But if in that moment we hesitate and say, this is not what I want, we can turn and slink away and feeling like God's not helping us. And really what it is is not trusting him into walking into something that may feel difficult But he's saying, this is where the promised land is. This is where we partner together in relationship. This is where I'm calling you to step out in faith in your life. This is where I'm calling you to set aside your trust in finances. As he calls us into relationship that is not compartmentalized, but wholly in relationship, in true peace and rest, in our true identity in Christ. Again, Jesus knows and sympathizes with our struggles. He, he knows that we help that we need and he can provide it. But it's on his terms, not ours. If we come to it with our terms, we'll find some help, we'll find some comfort, but it will be shallow and it will not offer the full transformation and the full rest that is promised because we'll have one foot in following the will of God and we'll have one foot following our own will and what Peter or James talks about is then we'll be tossed around like in a storm and we won't find that peace. We have peace when we fully submit and trust that God will help us and give us grace in our time of need. But then it's in a trusting aspect of his way and not ours. This is why I love Hebrews. There's an aspect of heaviness, but the aspect of heaviness actually reveals just how much grace there is. Again, two-edged sword knows everything within you every thought, every intent, every action, and knowing all of that says, you're welcome to the throne room. Come boldly. Come in love. Come in grace. Come in peace. Come in forgiveness. I know who you are, and I want you here. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for this passage. I thank you for the warnings that are within Hebrews, but also the grace that is so deeply connected and reveals how much you love us, how much that you have forgiven us, and how much you desire to be in relationship with us in true peace and true rest in every circumstance that we find ourselves in. Lord, I pray that you help us to examine our own minds and our own hearts and to recognize the areas where we have not fully trusted you or entered into your rest. We see the promise of your yoke is light and your burden is easy. And we long for that. And yet we hold on to and pick up other things that you're calling us to set aside or to leave behind. I pray that you help us to recognize what those things are to cast them aside, to trust you. And when you call us in grace and mercy and give us help in our time of need, that we would do that on your terms and not our own. Because in following you is where we find true healing, true help, and true rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.